This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. Welcome to the latest edition of the Money and Markets podcast. This week, we'll be looking at why inflation fears are still making markets jittery and what to look out for next. So Danny Hewson is with me to talk about a big bid for one of our big supermarkets. Yes, Morrison's might have turned down the offer from a private equity firm, but there's been plenty of speculation a bidding war might be on the cards. And it's raised the prospect that some of our other supermarkets might be looking attractive too. And all that has given London markets a nice boost. It's been five years since the UK's Brexit referendum. So we'll be chatting to our head of active portfolios, Ryan Hughes, about what's changed between then and now. Brexit played a big part in Boris Johnson's Red Wall victories, but what's going on with his levelling up agenda? I've been chatting to the director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, Henry Murison. And we've also got Tom Selby with us to try and shed some light on recent speculation about pension tax relief reform. And Jen's been digging through her coin collection as the Royal Mint strikes a new 50 pence piece to commemorate the Olympics. So plenty to rattle through. Let's start, Dan, with the story that's not going away. It's having a huge impact on markets. Of course, it's inflation. What's the latest? Yeah, I mean, it's still there. You know, I think everyone who should be experienced this now with that the cost of living is going up. Um, we're seeing it in multiple industries. And of course, this is feeding through to what central banks are thinking about. Um, and we've had the US Federal Reserve say that actually they're going to start thinking about raising interest rates in 2023. So that's earlier than previously forecast. And it's a pretty clear message here that the long run outcome for the economic activity is better. And, you know, obviously the long run outlook for inflation is actually unchanged. So what people are thinking here is we're going through a period where inflation could keep going up, but it may not uh, be here you know, for too long. This is just a short term issue. But, um, you know, markets are reacting to every every single word that someone says relating to inflation and interest rates. And we've had the St. Louis Fed president, James Bullard, has come out um, saying actually he thinks that the Fed could raise rates early as next year. So, you know, we had a bit of a wobble on the global markets um, after these sort of announcements. You know, had a big sell-off in Japanese equities on Monday with the Nikkei down more than 3%. But, you know, that triggered a response from the Bank of Japan who went uh, reportedly purchased 70 billion yen worth of stock ETFs. Um, but, you know, since then we've had US stocks have bounced back a bit, um, a brighter day on Tuesday for the Nikkei. And, the FTSE in the UK is doing quite well because Brent crude oil prices exceeded $75 for the first time since April 19. Because that's that's driving up shares in BP and Shell and, and they have a really big impact on the, the market. And we're recording this, of course, before the Bank of England makes its latest decision on interest rates. But despite some really quite strong data that shows that prices are going up, we aren't likely to see any changes in the UK yet. How's it expected to play out? Yeah, I mean, I think here, I don't think anyone expects the the Bank of England to be putting up interest rates any soon. I think what we want to see is, you know, Evidence of a stronger economy, and for that, you know, to be driving lots more jobs, uh, and then you get to the point where thinking, okay, well, you know, interest rates go up to try and cool the economy, and I really just don't think we're at that that 
situation now? Um, we obviously spoke an awful lot last week about the rising cost of oil, which you were mentioning there. But um, one of the big things which gave a bounce to the FTSE earlier this week were supermarkets. And that was because of a bid that we had for Morrison's. Morrison's share price surged by 28% after a US private equity firm made an offer to buy the supermarket group for £5.5 billion. Now, on Monday, if you were watching, the shares closed at £2.28 a share, which is just below the 2.30 pence a share proposed by Clayton, Dubier and Rice. Now, Morrison's rejected the offer. They said it significantly undervalued the business and its future prospects. And a lot of people would agree with them because, of course, a huge amount of money has been spent by supermarkets over the last 12 months when they were feeding the nation. They changed the way that they were doing deliveries. They increased more slots, obviously spent an awful lot of money on the stores as well to make sure everything was COVID secure. And there is speculation that this bid may prompt other supermarkets to also receive bids and might prompt more bids for Morrisons because of course that is what happened with Asda. We saw the sale earlier this year. But the interesting bit with Morrisons is going to be what Amazon does here because it's had a tie-up with Morrisons since 2016. We don't usually see Amazon getting involved in these bidding wars. And in fact, a lot of commentators have said expect them to stand back but it's an interesting dynamic. Morrison's, of course, is the UK's fourth largest supermarket chain. It has nearly 500 shops, and it's unique among supermarkets because it manufactures about half of its own fresh food. I've been to a number of its uh, production sites in and around Bradford, and it's an incredible operation, and they also have really strong ties with farmers as well because they're very much about... UK PLC, they want to promote fresh food. And what we've seen, of course, is a lot of changing structure through the pandemic. So a lot of people potentially thinking that we will see a, an increased offer for the supermarket. Because under UK takeover rules, CDNR has until the 17th of July to announce a firm intention to bid or walk away. Now, on top of the cash offer, uh, we know that they're talking about taking on Morrison's £3.2 billion worth of debt. So the deal would be around £9 billion. And one of the reasons that it might be of interest is because they've got a lot of freehold property, and that could generate cash to pay back if they sell it on sort of sale and lease back terms. So a lot of people suggesting that this bid really is very much undervaluing the supermarket. Yeah, I've seen lots of comments about uh, how you know, Morrison's has got a bit of a, an integrated operation. So it's, um, you know, it even owns an abattoir as, as well as uh, supermarkets. And it's seen as a prime supplier into the UK of, of food and I think I think some people might be going stepping a bit too far by sort of saying you know it's outrageous this business can never be taken over this is the end of um, UK businesses as we know it but you know we, we have had some calls for um, you know by Labour to call for the UK government to step in and um, you know should should we should we let private equity and perhaps foreign companies be be, be taking all that our, our our UK businesses or you know. Do you flip that on his head and say, actually, you know, this Morrison's is owned by UK shareholders. Its job is to to, to make money for its shareholders and 
um, you know, if shareholders vote in favour of it to be taken over, then you know that's that's just job done, really. Well, that's certainly what a UK government spokesman has said. We're committed to ensuring UK remains open for business, they've said, while protecting the livelihoods of British workers and investment in the UK. And the government recognises that overseas investors play a major and positive role in simulating economic growth in every part of the UK. But you've got to remember, this is a business that employs 118,000 staff. And as we've already discussed, it's got huge ties to farming. Um, In fact, it describes itself as British farming's single biggest customer. It works directly with 2,200 livestock farmers, 200 growers. And some of those relationships are over 30 years old, which has prompted the National Farmers Union to require, to call for, to be baked in the promises to maintain the terms that are currently on the table with farmers. And and as you say, um, Labour has called for the government to to step in and, and really keep an eye on any potential takeover, particularly looking, of course, at the pension scheme and any sign that they're going to really strip away the value from this business. Because you know, a lot of businesses at the moment are looking incredibly attractive to foreign investors, not just supermarkets. Um, and we've talked about this before, Dan. Yeah, you know, the, the UK stock market's been unloved for you know, ever since the EU referendum in 2016. Um, but we, we're getting to the point now where you know we have an EU trade deal. Um, you've got clear evidence of companies coming out of COVID. Um, they're recovering their earnings, and I just think for you know, particularly for an overseas investor, they're looking at UK companies and thinking, well, um, you know, the valuations are still relatively cheap here. Yeah, you know, some of some have increased the value a little bit in the last um, sort of nine months or so, but just generally, I think that they just have a bit more confidence about the lay of the land, and so that's why we're seeing so many different um, industries being subject to to mergers and acquisitions and takeovers. And, and I think that you're going to see at least another six months more of this activity. And you mentioned Brexit there, and um, we were talking earlier, and it is now five years since the Brexit referendum. I mean, it feels like yesterday in some ways, and in other ways, it feels like it was a really long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember the, the result of the follow after day after the um, we, we all went to the polls, and you know there was an eerie silence when I was going on the train to work, and I think lots of people were not quite sure what was going on, and uh, you know I, I remember sitting through countless meetings with fund managers and experts talking about what might go on, and um, you know there was some serious gloom about that, but I think you know. It, Time has gone part fast, and obviously we've had this a global pandemic during that period as well. And I just think that you know you're now seeing supply chain issues. Um, still, lots of you know, businesses saying we don't know how we're going to deal with um, you know customers in Europe now. It's too much paperwork. But you know, perhaps you know if we have the same conversation in a year's time, some of these issues might be ironed out quite easily. And I just think that. Um, perhaps it's not such a, a huge worry to investors anymore like it was. And you know, obviously we've got Ryan in a second who will be giving us his thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, things have changed massively in terms of politics. And I was working as a TV reporter in the north of England when the Brexit result came in. And it was quite a surprise to people in London, a number of colleagues that I spoke to at the BBC at the time, um, but in the north, 
it didn't really come as a surprise. And what we saw after was another big shock with Boris Johnson's big election victory, which saw the Conservatives take a huge number of traditional Labour seats in the north of England, something which is often referred to as the Red Wall. And part of Boris Johnson's manifesto promised to level up areas that had been underinvested in. And earlier I caught up with Henry Murison, director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, and I asked him how the pandemic had affected those plans. I think it, I think all kind of economic and political thinking kind of came to a kind of abrupt stop, didn't it, for a little while in terms of the longer term, because we were thinking about next week, not about next year or the next 10 years. Um, I think what's interesting actually is, although some of the thinking stopped, it probably it was all reflected into people's ideas about what the recovery should look like, what we're trying to rebuild, because you don't necessarily want to go back to how things were before. And it certainly did come to the fore in the way people thought about what was happening around the arguments about tier three and the the roles that the mayors played particularly. And I think it probably changed the, the political sort of makeup of the UK, which is suddenly that it made not just Nicola Sturgeon and, the First Minister of Wales, who's now kind of a kind of cult celebrity figure, isn't he? But it made all the Metro mayors, particularly Andy Burnham, into kind of household names. And whether people always agreed with them or not, they at least knew who these people were. And I think that has changed the debate about the future of the country, because people don't necessarily look to Whitehall and Westminster as the place that they want their leadership to come from. I think more and more they look more more to the place they're in. Um, and, and they think, of, I think certainly in the economy, they see the fact that these figures outside of London, uh, whether they're Conservatives or Labour, as being a natural place where leadership can come from, Danny. Has it changed the dynamic in terms of the way businesses think about the North, about investing in the North or, or anywhere outside the South East? Because the way that we now talk about working from home and remote working and, and all the new practices that have been put in place perhaps make certain areas more attractive than they would have been before? I think that it has certainly changed the nature of how people think about London and the role of London, which I think is London has a key role in the, the national life of the country. Particularly the city plays a huge role in enabling growth, not just here, but around the world. But I think no longer do people think that to have to get on, you have to be there physically, um, because doing so much more virtually is a massive leveller. And so lots of people that sort of didn't really need to be in London, but were there because lots of other things were there, are now sort of thinking to themselves, well, I could actually be based back where I'm from, or I, if I've got a, a base up north, I don't have to necessarily be in London all week, I can maybe just pop down when I need to. I mean, I think everyone's got friends anecdotally who've done that, or who've thought about that. I think what's really interesting thinking about what happens next is that to what extent does that change where people start businesses, right? So clearly it's always been probably easier to raise funding and to get started in particular fields if you're in London uh, and the kind of the, the role of Canary Wharf in fintech. I mean, there is a, a fintech cluster across the Pennines, but it's not as big. It's not got the same scale. How do you convince entrepreneurs in particular that they can start businesses here? Um, and how also do you demonstrate that you can make the same kind of dynamic knowledge intensive businesses work in a city like Manchester or uh, Newcastle as can work in London? I think it was always the case, but I think it's now from a 
particularly an investor standpoint, people are more open to the idea that not all economic activity will have to be as focused in London. And I think the, certainly the competitiveness of our regional cities is only going to go up because more and more people can make their careers in northern cities. The labour markets here are going to get much deeper pools of talent. And that will mean that from an inward investor perspective and from the perspective of those making locational decisions about major corporate headquarters and other major investment decisions, having talent is what drives those decisions as well as connectivity and, and if the north has both of those then we'll absolutely be set up to thrive in the next few years. You mentioned connectivity there and I, I want to talk to you about rail but before we move on we've got the new infrastructure bank now in Leeds. Is that just symbolic or is it actually going to help deliver this rebalancing which the North and a lot of places around the UK have been promised for so long. We've got to remember that in fields like energy, which is going to be vital to securing our net zero future, most of the investment is not going to be by, by the public sector. It's going to be private investment. And you think about the major strengths of the North's economy, health innovation, digital, manufacturing, energy is right up there amongst those kind of top four key things. I mean, they drive... 25% of the direct employment, but they, they generate a lot more of the employment as a result because they kind of kick off the, the activity, the productive work that keeps other people busy as well. Um, and I think whether you're trying to build small modular reactors or carbon capture and storage technology, deploying that in places like the Humber on Teesside across in the Liverpool city region, I think all of those things will be a lot easier if those treasury guarantees that have always been available, right, for infrastructure projects since George Osborne was chancellor, but but the wider funding and the ability to crowd in funding, um, I think it will make a big difference. I, I don't think it's in itself big enough yet. I think this is the first iteration of it. And I think the real opportunity is if this works, can you grow a much larger institution? Because at the current scale it's proposed, it will make a big impact, but I don't think it will necessarily be enough to, to address all the challenges. And when it comes to local authorities and public authorities in, in our places, they can also access some of this funding that's, that's ring fence for them. I think the need for that availability of capital for those big schemes um, will be critical if we're gonna be able, for instance, to decarbonize heat, if we'll be able to do all the things that our COP26 commitments mean we'll need to do. Um, the likelihood of what we'll be committing to this autumn will dictate huge changes on our economy and, and leading that global transition to net zero to decarbonisation it's it's a massive potential export industry for the north of England so it's not just the jobs you generate on the big projects like a, a serious minerals which has been entirely privately funded out in Scarborough um, now bought by Anglo-American after the challenges they had um, that's a three billion pound project so those sorts of big schemes obviously generate employment but they also in the case of, of that particular investment they create add-on opportunities for investment they create clusters that can then be uh, important in terms of global leadership for us so i think we're interested in in the whole packet to what extent can we can we win the transport race to what extent can we win the infrastructure race because these are global opportunities and those parts of the world that are set up to compete have got a big chance to get a big share of, of the opportunities that are going to come from them. You're talking about infrastructure, obviously a huge focus over the past couple of weeks has been on rail. People have found other ways of travelling throughout this pandemic and, and rail 
has been something of a loser. Do we still need to look at rail if people are going to be working from home more than they ever did? I think that, I mean, in the north of England, remember, most people already commute by car to work. So it's a bit different to London, the southeast, where there's been a huge history of commuter travel in and out of London. And that has been disrupted right by this pandemic, five day a week working services, which are just about getting from the office to where you live. That is less relevant probably than it ever has been, I think, to economic growth. Um, still necessary, but not as important. Um, I think what's interesting about the schemes like HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail is that if people are not habitually commuting into an office that's, say, half an hour, an hour from their house, that doesn't mean they're not going to still want to see people. And I I think about the journeys I've made in the last few weeks, uh, a number of them by, by train and, and relatively long distances. And I think there are clearly many other people already doing that for work or for other reasons uh, now that that train travels open to people who aren't just just key workers and for whom it isn't essential to, to use the train so i think that we will clearly have a period of hiatus where normal patterns of life are not going to be restored uh, entirely but i think in the very long term and again in these sort of infrastructure decisions you do are talking danny about that very long-term view i think that it's it's very likely that if anything, people will still want to see themselves each, each other face to face. And I'm struck when I first took this job, people in the digital sector were saying to me that they didn't go into an office every day, but they did want to see people um, for their work. Uh, and they, they valued being able to see people face to face, but they often wanted to make journeys and that, that were not easy to make. So people from Sheffield who couldn't get to Manchester, couldn't get to Leeds. Um, and it was a real inhibitor for them. I think that as we move in that direction, what we're going to find is there's going to be a lot more people who value seeing people but also don't have to go to the same place every day um and that's a more likely outturn position than than everybody just working from home the whole time and i think hybrid doesn't mean no travel it means a different sort of travel and it probably also needs to go hand in hand with the fact that lots and lots more people driving in and out of our big cities is not great for air quality it's also going to cause a lot of congestion and make those journeys quite unpleasant so i think mass transit, trains, trams, uh, the metro up in Newcastle, all these systems are critical to mobility. We might use them slightly differently. They might get used at different times a day, get used for different sorts of journeys, but there are going to still be people needing to get around. And ideally, we don't want that to be only by using the car, whether it's cycling, whether it's walking, whether it's it's trains and buses, that's all great. Um, as long as we don't just have people having to depend on on private vehicles, which remember a lot of people don't necessarily own a lot of families even they have one car don't have two cars so you've got to think about the reality of most people's lived experience is is not having completely having choices about this i mean and 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 you see buses through the pandemic getting key workers to work the whole time we need to think about those ways that people get around and improving those in the short to medium term to give people better quality and and nicer journeys that mean that actually they are prepared to take a slightly better paid job but slightly further from home rather than turning it down because they wouldn't want to have to commute all that way. Henry thank you very much indeed for talking to us we really appreciate your time. So Henry Murison there from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership so let's talk more about Brexit now because Ryan Hughes is with us and he's HFL's head of active portfolio so Ryan you know five years does seem like a lifetime ago what's what's your sort of impressions of how things have changed? Yeah hi there um 
in some respects, it feels like lots of change, but in, in other ways, it probably feels like not too much has changed, uh, not least because we've probably all been, you know, feel pretty beaten up by the whole Brexit discussion that's been going on uh, going on for so long. I mean, certainly what we saw in the aftermath, and you've just been talking about that, was that, that uncertainty, that immediate uncertainty of nobody knew what was going to happen with financial markets, with the currency, with uh, their jobs, with the economy, and all, and all these different things. And yeah, that level of uncertainty is is bad for is bad for everyone. It's bad for uh, it's bad for the pound, and we saw the pound hit quite strongly. Um, we saw foreign investment stop because of that uncertainty. So overseas companies reluctant to invest in in the UK, open more factories, buy more companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, what we saw was the UK stock market significantly lagging other parts of the world. We saw the US power ahead. We saw Asia. Uh, power ahead and China uh, uh, as well. So in, in some respects, that level of uncertainty was uh, a, a massive drawback and a massive headwind. But equally, I think it's interesting to reflect five years on that if we remember back to Project Fear and, and all those uh, protestations of what was going to happen uh, of, with uh, the housing market and immediately jobs and the city and all of those things, I think we can safely say now that just about Quite a lot of project fear didn't really come to fruition, um, and that, I think it was a it was a government minister that said a while ago that we're all we're all sick of experts. Uh, well, yeah, what does that mean now for trust in experts uh, going forwards when so many things that people said about Brexit you know, haven't really happened? Well, you talk about the property market. I mean, it's you know five years ago we were all fearing about it. Now it's sort of you know it's the strongest it's been in an incredibly long time, isn't it? So it's. Um, it's quite amazing how, how you know in a, short, a relatively short period of time you know things totally change, don't they? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And really, what we see with 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 any you know, stock market or any kind of investment market um, is that the uncertainty is is what is where the real problem is. And once you get an element of certainty, even if it's certainty that things are going to be pretty bad, well, actually. People can start to plan. They can start to prepare. Business leaders can uh, can, can can position their companies uh, accordingly. Obviously, with the property market, we haven't seen a collapse in employment that was uh, originally uh, predicted, and and therefore that's meant the property market has remained very robust, and of course has been recovering very strongly uh, with the measures that the government put in uh, because of the pandemic. So yeah, absolutely. The property market's gone the completely other way. And I think many people would be very fearful about it being too high rather than too low. We were talking earlier about UK equities looking cheap and becoming a target for foreign investors, but it has taken a while. Yes, absolutely. Again, it comes back to how long it took to get some element of certainty. If we remember back to, I think it was Christmas Eve, uh, when uh, when the Brexit deal was announced, so uh, so a very very long time after the uh, after the original referendum, uh, and and that uncertainty just just really um, yeah it, it stopped everything happening with the UK economy from an overseas perspective. Now we see the UK firmly in the catch up zone. So the pound has rallied strongly. We're seeing foreign investment picking up. You'll be reading in the papers and hearing on the radio on a regular basis of, uh, of, of overseas companies that want to invest in the UK. We've just been talking about US private equity uh, trying to buy Morrisons, and there are many other examples uh, here. But, it, but it's definitely an improving picture. What we've seen in the market is that smaller companies have done very, very well. 
uh, post the referendum. If you look over the last five years as to which bits of the UK market have performed well, it's the smaller companies end. And really, that's been due to them being able to exploit their particular area of expertise without all of the interference of political noise and the headlines in the papers from one day to the next of not knowing what's happening. Yeah, that's really hard for a multinational global company to deal with because they're getting they're getting battered from all angles. But um, but where you see it with a smaller company is generally they're very good at one or two things and they've been able to exploit that over the last few years and their performance has been uh, been very strong on the back of it. There is an exception, though, in terms of food. I know that food exports to the EU have been hit quite badly. There was a report out recently and a number of small businesses obviously caught up in that. But in general terms, how's business feeling now? Yeah, I think, I think as, as Dan was saying earlier, you, we're in a transition. We're, we're officially out of the transition phase, but we're absolutely in a transition phase uh, of trying to interpret what the, uh, how to deal with the new rules. It's interesting, a very recent survey uh, of 5,000 global business leaders said that the UK is now a better place to invest than before Brexit. So for all of the the doom and gloom that came after the referendum result of uh, what's that going to do for foreign investment? Well, many business leaders are saying that actually the UK looks quite a decent place to invest now. Now, that could be to do with with some clarity on Brexit, uh, with what some people might perceive to be a, a more of a pro-business government, albeit that's probably a debate for another day with some of the measures that are uh, that, that are coming in. But it does feel like the narrative is more positive. Say companies, overseas companies are wanting to buy British business. We're seeing lots of takeover bids. So steps in the right direction, but without doubt there will be uncertainty uh, and a few bumps in the road from here. So Ryan, there are some still issues still to address, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Something as big and complex as Brexit was never going to be resolved quickly, as we've seen. And of course, we're seeing issues with uh, with Northern Ireland uh, and and how uh, a lot of uh, imports are getting treated there. And also, we still have big issues with financial services where there's no uh, equivalence. So that is where the EU is recognising British uh, laws as being uh, up to the same level as EU laws. And that, that actually is stopping UK-based companies uh, in financial services uh, doing business uh, in the EU. So these things, yeah, they may take months, maybe years to get resolved, and maybe they will never get resolved. But I think what's really important is when we talk to fund managers uh, in, in our day job, what they're hearing from company management is that they're getting on with the job. They're doing what they can to get it right for their businesses and are fully focused on taking as much of the opportunity out there that exists uh, as they can, rather than uh, trying, yeah, getting bogged down in all of the, uh, the the red tape and the rigmarole that comes with it. So it certainly feels more positive, but absolutely bumps in the road for quite some time, I think. Thanks, Ryan. Lovely to talk to you as always. Uh, before we bring on another familiar voice, let's just have a quick chat about savings because, Dan, you've seen some research about what people in the UK are searching up on their devices when they're thinking about saving, which lots of people, of course, have been lucky enough to be able to do during the pandemic because they've not had much else to spend their cash on. What have you found? Well, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, Danny, what do you think is the most search for Um either product name or sort of like a savings wrapper or a strategy for someone who's looking to put some money away? Well, you've caught me now because I know what you're going to say. <laughs> so it's not really fair, but I would assume, to be honest with you, that it might just be a high street bank. 
Well, no, the, the answer, according to this, this research done by ETX Capital, is premium bonds, um, which is quite interesting. I love a premium bond. They're, they're very divisive. I think you either got people who love or hate them. I think, you know, if you've got 368,000 monthly searches for this product types, there's clearly a lot of people who do love them. Uh, you know, people are drawn to them because you, you, your money is protected under a government guarantee and there's a chance of, of winning big. So you can win between £25 and a million pounds for each prize draw. So the downside is that people, including myself, don't seem to win <laughs> very often. And, um, you know, and I really hate it when they, qu- they quote an interest rate as if you're like lure you in by saying, you know, you're going to get it's equivalent of this X percent interest rate. But, you know, that's that's just an average of you could actually come away with earning nothing. And, and I've had some money in them for, for ever since I was a kid. It was given to me. And I don't think I've ever won a single penny with it. So, um I don't know. I'll put my thoughts to one side, but you know, the second most searched for savings rated term was lifetime ISAs. And I think that's, that is really interesting. And I think if you considering that it beats terms like bonds and savings accounts, and just for those who aren't quite familiar with lifetime ISAs, they're really easy to understand. If you age between 18 and 39, you can open up an account and save up to £4,000 a year. The government will give you 25% or whatever you contribute as free money. So this is absolutely ideal way to either save to get onto the property ladder or for retirement savings. But the downside is you can't just casually dip into it. So you have to pay a 25% penalty fee if you withdraw money, unless it's for your first home purchase, your age 60 or over, or if you're terminally ill. Well, my dad actually did win some money on the premium bonds once which is why I've kept some money in there, but I've never won anything. Um, yeah, just just don't have that that lucky touch. Um, you were talking about lifetime ISAs there, and for most of us, our, our biggest savings pot, of course, is is looking for retirement, and it's usually a pension, or a lot of people go with a pension. Tom Selby is with us because there have been some pretty spicy headlines to worry about over the last couple of days, Tom. Let's mm. talk with the latest, it's all about possible reform to tax relief. What's being discussed and is it going to happen? So I would take these rumours around pensions tax relief with a fairly large pinch of salt. So we always get rumours and speculation about whether or not the government will keep pension tax relief as it is. So at the moment, you get pension tax relief at your marginal rate of income tax. So if you're a 20% taxpayer, then if you contribute into pension, you get 20% tax relief. If you're a 40% taxpayer, you get 40% tax relief. And if you're a 45% taxpayer, then you get 45% tax relief. Now, the rumours ahead of the, we were expected to have a budget in the autumn um, there was a Telegraph article that came out at the start of this week suggesting that the Treasury is looking at various ways to change the way that pension tax relief works to, to raise money in the, in the country's fight back from COVID. So the first proposal that's been floated, which has been flo- floated before, is the idea of setting a flat rate of pension tax relief. So rather than having pension tax relief at your marginal rate of income tax, you might you will get a flat rate of between 20% and 30%. So clearly that would be bad news for anyone who's a higher rate taxpayer or an additional rate taxpayer at the moment, but could potentially mean that those who are a basic rate taxpayers might get an extra boost to their pension, but the government's not said it's going to do this and hasn't stated how it would do that. And I think that would be the big challenge for them in doing that. Um, the second idea that's been floated has been another cut to the lifetime allowance. So that's the 
the maximum amount that someone can save in a pension throughout their lifetime. So at the moment, that's set at just over a million quid, uh, which sounds like a huge amount of money. But actually, when you're if you're thinking about taking an income in retirement, so if you're going to buy an annuity with a million pounds, for example, if you wanted that to go up with inflation and you were age 66, say around state pension age, and um, you're healthy, then you might be looking at an income somewhere below £30,000 a year, so around £28,000, £29,000 a year, which would be a decent income, but feels like quite a, a low cap, I've always thought, to set on people's retirement aspirations. So the, the, the article suggested that the Treasury might be looking at reducing this further, so to £900,000 or £800,000. But again, these are these are proposals. These, these aren't proposals at this stage. These are rumour and speculation and things that the Treasury are potentially looking at ahead of a budget later this year. But I'd urge anyone who's worried about these, these headlines to, to frankly think about something else because we don't have anything concrete and there's nothing here for people to, to make specific decisions on. But what, Tom, there's also some talk about the triple lock, isn't there? So mm. could you just give us a quick uh, explanation about what, what the triple lock is and, and perhaps what's being sort of discussed or speculated at the moment? Yeah, so speculation again. So the, the state pension triple lock is is a guarantee put in, that was uh, put in place by the coalition government has been kept in place, but placed by the, the Conservatives, which, um, which guarantees that the state pension rises by the highest of average earnings, inflation or... 2.5%. Now, it's it's in the headlines at the moment because, of course, we've had uh, an, an extremely strained economic time and, a, and an abnormal period for, for, for the economy and an abnormal period for, for average earnings. And so the, the fear is that what we're going to get this year is a big spike in average earnings. Now, obviously, that's an odd thing to be fearful for. Clearly, that's good news for people who are getting paid more money, but it's potentially bad news for the government through its triple lock proposal because it means that if we do get a spike in earnings, then the government may need to increase the state pension by more, which is going to lead to a drain on the public finances at the time at a time when those finances are obviously under significant pressure. Now, again, as with the pension tax relief stuff, we don't have anything specific. The government said that it's going to stick to the pension state pension triple lock. But I think the, the question here is whether or not they'll adjust the methodology here. So at the moment, the government picks um, the earnings figure for, for the three months to July in every year. Now, if we get a really big increase in earnings in the three month to, months to, to July, then it might be that the government looks to alter that calculation, perhaps smooth it over a longer period of time. So it's not having to spend quite as much increasing people's pensions. But again, we've got we've got no certainty as to what's going to happen there. So wait and see at this stage. Cheers, Tom. I know you're going to keep an eye on it for us and we'll get you back on if anything changes. Uh, before we hand over to our Jen to chat about coins, Dan, you have spotted a rise in diamond prices. Now, I'm guessing this is probably because people are seizing the moment, reopening a physical retail, because it's not one of those purchases that you want to make online, is it? Well, you say that, but you know, there's news of a 50-carat diamond. It's gone for $2.7 million at a digital auction, and that sets a new record for the highest price paid online for a jewel. So someone's obviously just uh, you know, taken a look at the pictures and thought, that's that's enough for me. So it's quite <laughs> interesting. The diamond prices are, are showing 
sort of strong recovery as economies reopen, as you sort of suggest, and, and buyers return to jewelry stores, but also supply chain issues um, potentially causing a few a few problems. Uh, I think we could we could be seeing some diamond shortages coming with. If you think about the Indian cutting centers have been very badly hit by COVID. De Beers is one of the big names in the diamond industry, and it raised its prices by 5% for uh, more than two carat goods in June. Um, Also raising by a similar amount for more than one carat stones in January because there'd been a shortage of rough stones, and that coincided with strong demand for polished goods. And I think this is quite interesting. I think lots of people sort of love to know what's going on with diamonds. We all aspire to own sort of nice, shiny things. But oh yeah, <laughs> there was a fascinating story that caught my eye the other day on the BBC about thousands of people were rushing to a village, two hundred miles from Johannesburg, after a cattle herder found some stones he thought looked like diamonds. And I saw this video of people furiously digging away and individuals holding big chunks of rock saying, look, look, they're full of diamonds. And all these happy people saying they're going to spend it on cars and all this money would improve their living standards. But unfortunately, the South African government now says these stones are quartz crystals, which are far less valuable. And it's a really sad ending to what could have been a bit of a life-changing experience for these people. Oh, how sad. Yeah. I could imagine most of them had spent the money twice over when you have <laughs> yeah. something like that. It's a bit like a premium bond one, isn't it? It never <laughs> happens. Um, that is about time that we have this week, but we've got Jen with us before we go. Um, what have you spotted? So I'm calling for all Money and Markets listeners to raid their wallets, purses, and I'll even let you check the kids' piggy banks because today we're talking coins, mainly 50p's, but any rare or interesting coin is welcome to the table. The Royal Mint are celebrating the Tokyo Olympics with a collectible 50p coin, with prices ranging from £10 for a brilliant uncirculated version all the way up to £1,005 for a gold-proof coin. Looking at the London 2012 games, coins were released for each sport, with the football one coming out as the most valuable at around £20 today. It depicts the offside rule, which is particularly helpful at the moment with the Euros going on. Um, If you manage to get a rare London Olympic swimming coin depicting a swimmer with water lines across their face, you could be in the money, as one sold last summer for over £10,000. The design was accidentally stamped onto a few coins and entered circulation in error, meaning numismatists, or coin collectors to you and me, went crazy for the rare bit of change. The rarest 50p coin produced by the Royal Mint is a Kew Gardens edition with 210,000 released, with one being sold online recently for £230. Meanwhile, the 1997 Britannia design, which you'll see on most 50p pieces, saw nearly half a billion in circulation. Other recent rare designs include Peter Rabbit and Jemima Puddle Duck from the 2018 Beatrix Potter collection, as well as a coin celebrating Sir Isaac Newton. Moving away from designs, Dan told me about gun money, which back, uh, which dates back to the 1600s. The name stems back to the coins being minted from melted down guns, but other brass objects like church bells were also used to forge the currency. If you've got any rare or collectible coins stashed away at home, let us know and we'll read a few out in the next episode. Whether it's an interesting design or made from strange material, you can email ajbellmediapodcast 
at ajbell.co.uk and you might get a shout out on next week's podcast. How do you know about gun money, Dan? My dad has a few coins and I was chatting to him the other day and he, he and I don't know why, it just came up in conversation and he, he, he dug it out and he showed me this um this coin and when he described it saying it'd been sort of made of melted down stuff i thought it'd be this sort of you know very strange sort of lumpy bit of Mm. a thing that might resemble a coin but it was beautifully smooth and um you know had had all sort of the emblems and stuff on it It, it's fascinating stuff really good you know maybe maybe he's gonna um sort of secretly confess to having a big coin collection and uh something i can look at later in my life <laughs> well those those um those gun money coins apparently it was it was to do with the war and if the um if everyone if the war was won then they'd be turned converted into silver into silver coins but it, it didn't happen so those ones just stayed as they were so it's a shame it wasn't a silver coin that'd be lovely <laughs> Well, do get in touch, as Jen says, if with all of your coin hoards. We'd love to know what you've got in your piggy bank. Uh, that's it from us. Don't miss next week's show. Dan's going to be chatting to a couple of guests about Bitcoin and bonds, though not at the same time, Dan. No. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. A lifetime ISA is not for everyone. If you withdraw money before age 60, other than to purchase your first home, you will pay a government withdrawal charge of 25%. This may mean you get back less from your lifetime ISA than you paid in. Also, if you choose to save in a lifetime ISA instead of enrolling in or contributing to your workplace pension scheme, you will miss out on the benefit of your employer's contributions to that scheme and your current and future entitlement to means-tested benefits may be affected. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.